Welcome to a very special episode of the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. With me today is Christy Coulter, who is the author of Nothing Good Can Come From This. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan, and she lives in Seattle, Washington. Her new memoir is called Exit Interview, The Life and Death of My Ambitious Career, which is about 12 years at a little company called Amazon. Christy, welcome. Thank you. Christy, this book is extraordinary. And and I think where I want to start is, I and as I was telling you, in 2011, I did, in fact, go to Seattle and have a day of uh, interviews at Amazon. <laughs> I'm so blown away by this. <laughs> and the first thing they made me do before going upstairs, of course, was to sign an NDA. Yeah. Ha- how did you write this book legally? I mean, <laughs> so I was like, I asked myself that question. I, I assumed for, I don't know, a couple of years that I just shouldn't even try. I wrote it very much as, well, you know, it's a very personal literary memoir. Like it's not a policy book. It's not a business book. Correct. And I basically tried not to use any research. I really challenged myself to not look anything up unless like, you know, oh, did we have a kitchen store in 2008? You know, I would check that kind of thing. But I basically just said, don't look anything up. And I did that mostly to make it a better book because I just thought it would be more um, a me book that way. But also because I thought, well, I'm working for my memories. Um, I'm allowed to do that. This is my life. And then, of course, I also knew there'd be an extensive legal review at the end. And there was. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating for me to read your book because I, of course, could recognize some of the people in, in this book, mm-hmm. even though they have pseudonyms, including the editor of this book. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. Yes. She won't mind if I name her. So Daphne Durham. I met Daphne the day I arrived at Amazon. Um, She had already been there probably five or six years at that point. And she worked in my organization. She was a books editor. I was overseeing media editorial. And Daphne and I knew each other. You know, we worked together off and on for 12 years. Um, She left Amazon a bit before I did and became an agent. Um, And we were talking about, I'd started writing again, talking about her maybe representing me. Um, She ended up then moving to FSG, where she acquired my first book, and then this one. And I I think it's such an amazing story. I mean, we just look at each other all the time and are like, how did this happen? (laughs) We both got out and we both are now (laughs) doing what we really feel like we're meant to be doing. And we did it together. It's just like, it, it makes me really sentimental, honestly. It's such an incredible story. And um, I just look, think back to that day that I met her and I'm like, you have no idea what's going to happen. Neither one of you does. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so you started in 2006. Yeah. moved to Seattle with your husband. And I feel like something very poignant to me was the idea that you wanted to be good at everything you do. And if a challenge is presented to you, you want to conquer it. Yeah. um, I'm just wired that way, I think. And also, you know, I kind of grew up as like the gifted child in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, the idea was that you were 
supposed to be good at everything. I I remember being a senior in high school and it finally hitting me that I couldn't stay good at like English and history and math and science forever. Like my limitations were starting to become very apparent that, you know, when they gently dissuaded me from pre-calculus and I was like, but wait, I'm supposed to do that. And to this day, I kind of feel like I should go to community college and take that class just to prove that I can do it. Amazon looks for those people. It's very good at finding those people who are not going to be beaten by anything because that's very good for them to have those people working there. There are many times in in your telling of your career there that you're asked to physically be (laughs) superhuman. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the standards. Yeah, in in the leveling document, which is how they describe different roles, they the level I was trying to get to, they the words nearly superhuman are are in there, which is you know horrifying and and was was horrifying to me in the moment because I I don't want to be superhuman. I mean, part of me does, but I, but I, I'd rather just be a good worker, good human, you know, good at what you do. Yeah, just um, good at what I do. One of the things that I had kept hearing about in in my investigation of the Amazon publishing imprint, I guess, mm-hmm. is people would say, okay, but could you work in, you know, lawn care? <laughs> if, right. if that's where they if that's where Amazon wanted to, to transfer you. And you mm-hmm. ran the gamut. You yes. committed at <laughs> <laughs> and tell me about that because it it seems so disorienting, and mm-hmm. yet there must be some skills that are really transferable, and then maybe others that aren't. I loved being able to pivot like that, and and being in a company that had the scope where I could. There are people. I mean, I have friends at Amazon who've been like a vendor manager their whole career, maybe in different departments, but that's just what they do. And now that Amazon has such specialized departments, you know, like if you're a producer for Amazon Studios, you're probably not going to go and become a marketing manager for lawn and garden, right? right? So that's your career. And I remember having to fight with people when I was working for APUB who said, well, what other jobs could they do here? And I would say, well, no, she's a romance books editor and that's what she's going to do for us or somewhere else. But I found it exhilarating. I remember when I started working for APUB, I had a pretty big leadership position and I knew enough about publishing to know that in the real world, nobody would hire a 41-year-old with no publishing experience to run a publishing imprint. And that just would not happen if you, you get in at 21 or you don't get in at all. And so it was really fun. And I actually think people underestimate how transferable their skills are. I think if you are a good critical thinker, you can communicate clearly, you're smart, you've got, and you understand how your company works, you've got a lot of what you need. And the rest of it is like vocabulary and contacts and things like that. And you've got to get those things. But, you know, I went to work in grocery. We were making food. I was writing recipes. You can, I'm not as good as somebody who's been doing it for a decade, but I was like, you could do it. So I always encourage when I talk to people about their careers, I'm like, don't underestimate like everything you could do. And that's so interesting to me because I identify so firmly as a book person Mm -hmm. that I I did work uh, at Barnes & Noble Corporate for a while. And one of the uh, merchandising leads went on to sell bottled water. And it it pained me. (laughs) 
<laughs> that these were interchangeable things. Yeah. There's people who really only want to sell the thing that they love. And there's people who just like to sell. I am more one of the people who just likes to sell. I was, you know, I want customers who want to find that bottle of water to be able to find it. And so I was sort of able to flex and I get curious. I was like, well, I, I would think, what is the world of bottled water like? Um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by people's jobs, which is one reason I wrote this book. And I get really curious about like what we just bought. Um, a, we just paint our dining room. And I was like, well, what is the world of paint like? Who names the colors? Who comes up with them? How do you mix them? And I just, you know, I all but went and got myself a job at a paint shop just to find out. <laughs> so that's just kind of how my my brain works. I want to live a lot of different lives, I think. Maybe too many different lives. I, I think that's so admirable. Well, it's weird. I, I mean, <laughs> tell me a little bit about Amazon in 2006, because I feel like in 2023, I've spent so much time understanding the negatives. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are many. Yes. Oh, yes. In the world of book publishing. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but tell me about what, what it was like in 2006. Yeah. It's, it's funny looking back. I, was, I came to Amazon from a company of about 200 people. So Amazon seemed overwhelmingly vast to me. But it was parts of three buildings in, in downtown Seattle. I think I want to say it was maybe like 5,000 people. So it seemed huge, but it was small enough that people would say, oh, you know, Ted and recommendations. And you'd be like, oh yeah, it's Ted. I know him. Um, It was basically just a retail company. It was already the most famous e-retailer on earth, Um, but there was no Kindle. There was no, you know, web services. There was no APUB, like all this stuff that would come later that would make it more than a place to shop did not exist or was in was secret. Yeah, I certainly didn't know about it. And it was we had offices in I think three or four other countries, but they were small. I mean, it was like a mom and pop shop compared to what it is now. When I arrived for my interview, but the way I knew I was at Amazon is there was a piece of printer paper with Amazon printed on it, taped to the door. I mean, that was the lobby side. <laughs> And I was like, wow, because even then I would have expected, you know, something a little more professional. I didn't realize that having no perks was such a big identity (laughs) for for early Amazon and current Amazon, really. I mean, the offices are much nicer now, the public spaces anyway, but it's basically a perk-free workplace. I overheard a few years ago a, a guy at a coffee shop who was giving a pep talk to his startup employee. And he said, you know, it's not Amazon. I can't give you like a gym and free haircuts and free food and daycare. And I was just like, oh my God, where does he think? It's not Google. Like none of that, none of that exists at Amazon. Um, And in fact, I was surprised. I was surprised to, to learn how in fact, so much red tape at Amazon prevented things from, from moving quickly, uh, yeah. physically and, and oh, otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It, when I first worked there, Jeff Wilkie, who was the senior VP at the time, I remember him saying, this, there's going to come a time when we can't turn the ship around quickly. And right now we still can. We want to make a new decision, but we're going to get to that point. 
And I was like, ah, whatever, because we moved so fast. And I definitely saw it happen, um, you know, within my tenure there that the ship just didn't move fast anymore. There are times that's good because you don't always want to be making breakneck decisions. But yeah, lots of red tape as it grew up. And I don't know how you avoid that. I don't think you can stay that agile and be the largest company in the world. I mean, and, you know, it's just inevitable, I think. But it's kind of sad. It seems like from where I'm sitting, I have read all the articles. I read, you know, you talk about a piece that Jody Cantor wrote about Amazon in 2015. Yeah. But it still feels like so many of the inner workings and, and methodologies uh, of Amazon are meant to be top secret. Yeah. Yeah. It's tell me. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. Okay. I was going to say, it's not a company that really talks to the public. I, I think Amazon's been forced to start talking to the public in the last few years a lot more than it ever was before because the news has been so bad, just so bad. Um, and they've not, in my opinion, done that very well. Like they, I've caught them lying in public. They, uh, there was an article about stack ranking employees where you have to put X number into your bottom bucket and get rid of them. And they said, we have never stack ranked employees. I mean, I was in meetings where we stack ranked employees, you know, at least you describe them times. in depth. Yeah. Lifeboat meetings. So I said, you know, you could, maybe you don't do it now and that's great, but to, to lie and say you didn't do it, there are tens of thousands of people who were there um, in those meetings. So it's, yeah, it's very strange. And I think the other reason that a lot of Amazon's inner workings are secret is that Amazon is chaos. And this is something I really wanted to get across in the book. Nobody knows what you're doing. <laughs> and, and it's a bunch of smart people kind of running around like chickens with their heads cut off, putting on a show in the barn. And so I think a lot of the inner workings are just like, oh God, what? Are, oh, we have to do this. We just had a new goal handed down. Well, let's figure it out. And so there is no, I mean, there are some systems, of course, but but there's just a lot of like, no one panics and let's figure this out. And so it's hard to convey that outwardly. Yeah, yeah. Think I, it's an army. And one of the things that I feel like the lifeboat meetings get at, which which is a big theme in your memoir is kind of the um, the way that Amazon values data above all else, mm -hmm. but also every data point is is a human being. Uh, in, yeah, in, in yeah. In the buckets. Yeah, absolutely. The the data points with the lifeboat meetings where we had to say who's who's the worst. It was always fascinating because the way that we would talk about those human beings was always quite respectful. It was never just like, well, screw that guy, get him out of here. Um, you could tell that everyone in the room was like, no one felt good about this, <laughs> um, you know, aside from the odd sociopath here and there. Mm -hmm. But there was this sense that these people, if they were the weakest, had to go. And some of these people were still really good. And that was the painful part, you know, that you couldn't just be really solid. And a company needs a bench. You know, you need people who aren't trying to become CEO, who just want to be good at their jobs and then go home. And there was a sense at Amazon that that was not okay. 
you know, that, that you had to be striving and wanting to really grow. And every year you needed to get that much better. And at some point, I remember thinking like, we're all going to get managed out at some point. If the hiring bar is that you're supposed to hire people who are better than half the people you already know at the company and the bar gets higher every year, then everyone who works here is going to end up in that bottom bucket. Um, I think it was chilling to realize that. I think Amazon is now seeing um, the limits of that because they're kind of running out of well, they're literally running out of warehouse employees. This has been publicly yes. reported that they're worried about it. And anecdotally, I mean, I know so many smart, brilliant people who just won't even take the phone call because they don't want to be in that kind of environment. So I think they're they're hitting the limits of people as disposable batteries. And it will be interesting to see if they can change their approach. Oh, yeah. I'm just hoping. I mean, and and so... Tell me a little bit about being an employee at Amazon while all of these news articles were breaking. Yeah. And and in kind of being aware of the public sentiment around Amazon. I of course yeah. I'm very vocal. <laughs> well, you know, living in Seattle was fascinating because mm-hmm. there's huge numbers of Amazon employees, but a lot of anti-Amazon sentiment. I was, I think I say in the book, I went to see Manchester by the Sea, this, you know, wonderful Kenneth Lonergan film. And it came up that, you know, Amazon was the producer and people in the audience booed. And I was like, wow, you know, presumably you're here because you want to see this movie. And yet (laughs) you're still so angry that Amazon produce this movie that frankly is not that commercial and that a lot of studios probably would have, you know, not taken on. So it was really, I would say to people, I worked at Amazon and they'd say, well, you know, we all have to pay the bill somehow, which I frankly found a little bit insulting. (laughs) So like I had no other options, you know, because I was also on the inside and I worked with some of the best people I'll ever know. And, you know, I found my work interesting and I I thought, well, it's more complicated than than you realize. But at the same time, I remember when the first big warehouse story came out um, about, it was in Pennsylvania and and the warehouses were like 110 degrees that there were ambulances outside. I saw that story and I was stunned. It's not like I thought warehouse work was a lot of fun, but I truly was clueless. And more than that, I had forgotten that we had warehouses. (laughs) You know, it was such a big company and I was working in, you know, publishing or something like that at the time. And you could simply forget about large swaths of what happened there. And I was like, right, we mail things to people. We pack them and was horrified and thought, can I do anything about this? No. And kind of you know, then went into my next crisis and kind of put it out of my mind. So there was constantly this sense of you're having to ignore certain things to, you know, to continue. And I I can't really, I mean, I can't defend that, um, except to say that a lot of us do that in our careers. You know, you don't, you don't love everything your company does, but it was, it was uncomfortable. And it's, I still am capable of getting a little defensive about Amazon um, just because of coming from the inside and knowing 
the people. I also lived in a small town in New Mexico for a year as a teenager. And so when I hear people say, oh, well, people should only shop at indie bookstores, I think, well, great. I, I do a lot of that. But I remember that year, there were no bookstores, there were no libraries and thinking like, wow, Amazon would have really made my life a lot better. I, I mean, I don't think there's anyone in the book world who thinks that Amazon and its original incarnation was mm-hmm. anything but wonderful. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I thought I thought everybody hated it from the get go for some reason. Um, I, 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 my understanding anyway, or, or my mm-hmm. my opinion was is that um, it. It's so lovely. Like uh, again, you have a, a little mea culpa in, in the book, but we talk <laughs> about bookshop.org. Before yeah. bookshop.org, there was really only one way to get books sent to you. And if you right. live in a book desert, then mm-hmm. then Amazon really, really changed the entire game. I remember um, shopping the store as, you know, it's just a customer back then and being fascinated that, you know, books that a physical store could never have the, enough shelf space for, or, you know, that was all available. Like that was kind of dizzying to me. And I remember thinking like, you know, what if you're a gay teenager who doesn't want to shop at the indie store in your town and, you know, a books about other gay teenagers or something, you know, that you would have that kind of privacy too. There was, yeah, there was like a certain democratizing effect back then, at least, that because bookstores just weren't set up to do shipping at large scale, like some of them are now. And like bookshop is. Has being an author changed the way you feel about Amazon at all? I was already, I knew a lot of writers. And so I was already feeling pretty sympathetic to their concerns about Amazon when the whole Hachette thing happened, which was just, that almost was as horrifying to me as the warehouse story, you know, because it was, I had a friend who had her first novel coming out through Hachette and people couldn't pre-order it. And she called and said, is there anything you can do? And I mean, I was like, this is a whole different part of the company. There was, there was nothing. And I just felt so awful. It felt like that was the first time Amazon was really directly taking authors as collateral damage um just openly being like well you know these people who've been working for years and don't make a lot of money and they they could use this we're gonna hurt them on purpose um so i'm very aware of it from that point of view other than that i mean honestly i think of it as a channel to sell books like any other um you know i'm happy that they're selling it <laughs> these, these fantasies that they might not and then my agent was like well that would be the best publicity you'd ever get <laughs> and I said well that's absolutely I, I wish that for you <laughs> right exactly she was like New York Times cover story and I was like well okay that's true but um yeah I just think of it as kind of a utility now um you know I it's not the discovery tool it, what it used to be. You know, it's not like an easy place to find about, out about new books, but it's there when you need it, you know? Christy, let's talk about when you were in merchandising, you talk about how there was a real shift between people with strong tastes who, who really knew specific music or books or, or movies. And that was slowly replaced by co-op 
Um, yeah. And the co-op team then sort of dictated the terms of, of what the merchandising would be. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a little side, a little <laughs> side question, because you mentioned the customers also bought algorithm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And back then, it was the one algorithm that fully and consistently worked for me all the time. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. I discovered so many books that way. The thing about algorithms, you know, people hate them, but they're really precise. <laughs> you know, we had a test once where um, in the movie department, the Criterion Collection was <clears throat> running a promotion. And if we had just run that promotion and shown it to all customers, it would have been a failure, you know, because most people don't care about those movies. But we just targeted it at people who had bought Criterion discs and other certain kinds of art films. And it went insane because everybody was thrilled. Everyone who saw it was thrilled. And that's kind of how the customers also bought Algorithm Works. Um, I would find these little books I'd never heard of. Now I find that it's like, it's other new literary fiction, you know? So if I look up a book, like when my oh, book it's comes not out, the same at all. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, I read, I, it, I could go to the table at Barnes and Noble or my local indie or pick up a newspaper and be like, yeah, these other four books by somewhat notable people that came out this week. <laughs> you know, it's, it really isn't the same. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how that, I mean, I don't understand how those algorithms work. So I don't know how that happened, but um, it makes me sad because that was a great tool. For me, it was always, it was a great tool for recommending books because when people would say, I loved this, I could look at on Amazon and and just even just with my knowledge, knowing what the results were, but having them right in front of me. And yes, I still think that is the one algorithm (laughs) that that helped me. And and then of course, and we don't have much time left, but I do want to get into this a little bit, Mm -hmm. is that. There aren't many women in Amazon. There never were. No. It's clearly no. not a priority. It really isn't. It, it, at, at entry level, incorporated, it's about 50-50. And then it's just like a reverse funnel. I mean, as you go up the ladder, and I was sort of an upper middle management, um, it was about 25% at my level. And then at the time, I think there were no women who reported directly to Jeff Bezos for most of that time, or maybe there would be one occasionally out of, you know, 15 people. And it, it's a strange place. It's not overtly hostile to women in the way that some tech companies have been reported to be, you know, there are no like hot tub parties because there's no hot tub. <laughs> um, I never experienced sexual harassment. It's actually the most asexual environment I've ever experienced almost to a degree that feels unhealthy. Like there's no cute workplace crushes or anything. Maybe other people have them. Um, but it is, um, you just gradually start to realize you're an alien and they are so tied to this idea of meritocracy that, which is basically meant to reproduce the status quo, you know, because like attracts like. So all these white guys, um, just happen to think that other white guys are the the very best. And most of them, I think, truly believe that they are egalitarian. Um, they're not trying to exclude women and people of color. They just are like, well, they'd rise to the top if they were that good. And it's really crazy making. It, it drove me insane trying to be that one exceptional woman who would really rise to the top. And, and 
it's funny the way I say that. I mean, I, I did, you know, I was rising to the top, um, but not the top I thought I should be at. There's always that one more place you want to be. And, and, and um, not to spoil anything, Christy, but like, yeah, you, you never got an actual promotion. No, entire time. no, no, I never got promoted. I was the kind of girl who 12 like, years. 12 years. I mean, I was the kind of girl who got promoted, you know, every year and a half at other jobs, like, like clockwork. And I could not get promoted to save my life at Amazon. Like this was the big, this is the hardest promotion in the company to get where I was trying to get to. But I, and this is the theme in the book, like every time I would have that conversation, there'd be some different reason. And, and like, I, I think Amazon does a bad job of that overall, but I think they especially do a bad job where people who don't fit the mold are concerned. And, you know, I had a weird career path too. Like I, I, my best friend became a director, which is what I wanted to be by taking the classic path that got you to director. And she sold software for a while. And she was like, yeah, I don't, I don't give a, I don't know if I can curse, but you know, I don't care about software, but, um, but I'll, I'll do it. And it worked. Um, I just, I didn't want to do that. But I, um, yeah, I left, I thought of this memoir for the first two years I worked on it as a memoir of failure because I felt like such a failure when I left. And I think I had to have a lot of therapy to get past that. I really did. That's, I thought this is a book about a, a woman who failed. And, and that is so upsetting, but also a little comforting in that we as readers can can surely see <laughs> that you're freaking out and it just didn't matter it doesn't matter at some point it really doesn't and and amazon is built on the idea that you should never really think you're kicking ass i mean i had bosses who were wonderful and who praised me and complimented me but the organism that is amazon and that is really how I think of it, almost as an organism more than an organization at this point, was really built on you living in a certain amount of fear and thinking you weren't doing enough and that you really better step it up. So I, I mean, people ask me why I didn't leave. And I tell them that I, I literally thought I was unemployable for years at a time. I thought, well, nobody's going to hire me. I'm terrible. And my husband was like, you're succeeding at like the most brutal place we know you're like a green beret. And I would just think, no, 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 no. I, you know, nobody else is going to give me a job. So I thought like it's Amazon or nothing. I truly believe that, that I was yeah, what washed a up form of gaslighting. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. For an entire company that is now an organism. Mm-hmm. What a scary, degrading way to feel. Yeah. It is. It is. And I think the leaders feel that way too. I mean, it's, it's everybody. Yeah. Before we go, Christy, mm-hmm. are, are there any books you would like to recommend that perhaps listeners could buy at bookshop.org? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a recent book I just read by Tim Murphy, Tim Murphy called Speech Team that I just loved. Um, it's about like this group of Gen Xers who were on speech team in high school together, who were reuniting um, to get some answers after something bad happens to one of them. And I just found it really charming and full of heart. Um, I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. Anything about like smart high schoolers, I just go nuts for. It reminded me of The Interestings, which is one of my favorite books of the last decade. And I think people would just really, really enjoy it. Um, my 
most read book of all time is probably Lori Colwin's Happy All the Time. Um, I read it every few years. My aim in life is to write a book that she would have approved of. Um, my next book is like a rom-com in the Lori Colwin mold. And I just want to please her. Like, I want to get to wherever we're going after life and have her be like, it's pretty good, kid. Um, so I always recommend that to people. And then I guess the book that a lot of people haven't read is um, Shirley Hazard's The Transit of Venus. I always recommend that to people who like books that are epic, but condensed. Um, so much happens in one little page. It's wild. It's insane. It's her and then also Alice Adams, who I think has been coming back into fashion a little bit. I reread Alice Adams' Superior Women at a residency last year. The way she manipulates and condenses time is insane. Like, I was like, I don't understand what you're doing. And I, I'm reading more of her because I want to understand that. And um, the two of them, I think, they're not super... They're not super fashionable to read, but they are um, just insanely good. So everyone should read them because they are that good. I love it. I love I love a personalized book recommendation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not algorithmic. <laughs> Exit Interview by Christy Coulter is out now. Christy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was actually a huge thrill for me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.